Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Good evening. Oh, good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for coming. I'm genuinely very excited um, about what you're going to say. Genuinely. So just by way of introduction, I just wanted to show you some pictures that came through from um, Chris and what they're doing in India, because I thought these were lovely. Oh, they're just so cute. And the next one. We look at that little girl. These next two are my favourites. She looks happy, doesn't she? And look at this next one. Oh, you can't really see it with the lights up, but she's, she's absolutely beaming. And what, um, what's very clear when they go out there is that it is incredibly effortful. I know that Ant's been tweeting today how grateful he is that we send him. I'm really grateful <laughs> that they're the ones that go and I stay here because it is hard work, full on. It's 18 days they'll have been there, um, full on. They've both been poorly at certain points while they've been away, which just, I mean, being away from home in a different country um, and they get absolutely drained in a positive way from people just wanting to get the life out of them. And Chris was saying that they've been going to this sort of sunflower project for about 10 years. And what's been incredible is the stories that they're seeing while they're out there. What used to be sort of quite, um, feel quite a religious heavy place. She says some of them, their condition is the same, but they have a joy now within it that makes them beam, which I thought was interesting that that's um, what they've been experiencing. So um, we're really looking forward to having them home. I'm sure they're looking forward to being back. But um, thank you for all that you invest so that we can send them there and... Um, I'm, like I say, I'm just very grateful that um, they go and do that work and we get to sit comfortably tonight. However hard the pews are, I think we're still probably better off. Um, now, Joel's going to share tonight. Um, with the best will in the world, he cannot in an hour dissect every single part of Revelation and explain it all for you. <laughs> It'd be impressive if you could. Um, but I know we're going to get the... the um, the cogs turning tonight, and it occurred to me as I was thinking about it, is I am a teacher of literature. And you've got to admit, Revelation, if you've never read it, um, you're going to hear about it tonight and hopefully it'll whet your appetite. But it's a cracking piece of literature. I mean, it's inspired and all those things we've heard. And one of the things that you have to train students to do um, when they're writing about literature is the more that they can pull in um, the wider themes and the wider context the higher up their marks go, because that's higher order thinking. If a student just goes into an exam and regurgitates what they've heard their teacher say, that will get them the lowest number of marks on the mark scheme. To really move up, you've got to engage and connect and think about, well, what did this mean at this time, in this place, to these people, and how does it linked to us now? Which occurred to me, that's exactly what we're doing tonight, apart from we're not going to be graded on it. Yay! So we get to enjoy it, um, have fun with it. Um, the highest thing that students can do with a text 
um, in literature is interrogate it. So if they take that thing and say, I'm going to ask great questions about this text, that gets them the A star star. Do you know there's an A star star now? A star wasn't enough. It's called grade nine. There's now an A star star. Um, um, that's the highest thing. So us interrogating it tonight is a higher level thinking, um, but it's also going to do us the world of good. And if you leave with more questions, that's fine. Just ask them, has everyone, have we got the slips of paper tonight or not? If, if as things are being said, you have a question, please jot them down. This is part one, um, unless you genuinely can cover the whole book in an hour. So good luck. Right, there you go. Oh, yes, no, yes. Ah, there we go. Right, well, it's good to see you all. <clears throat> um, it's interesting on the back of what uh, Jenny just said about Chris and Anth. Um, I got a text from Chris the other day saying that Anth had done five and a half hours of teaching back to back uh, with one of, his, one of his groups. And, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, it's what he does. Actually, anybody talking for five and a half hours especially when the degree of intensity that they are looking for is so huge. If you think about it, when we come to meetings here, particularly within the group that's here tonight, we've walked a process now for so many years of uh, chipping away at different things that we now are getting used to a particular type of language, aren't we? So, and also you'll find you don't get quite shocked as much anymore. Have you noticed that by things? It's almost like when you've walked the journey we have, it's almost that actually, whatever you throw at me, we'll just take it as it comes and we'll look at it and we'll talk about it. Um, whereas you've got to remember that when you're only going to a place once a year or sometimes once every year and a half or whatever, to, to get all that across is incredibly difficult because of course they're throwing out questions at the same time that we would kind of already all know. Uh, but for Anth to do that to some degree and make it so clear and so wonderful for them to listen to is just brilliant. So hats off to them. I think it's just amazing. Um, another thing I'd like to really um, appreciate with, with Chris and Anth is that obviously this is the first time I've done a lab in its new context. Um, I did an in, um, an in Deep a few times, but again, we weren't quite doing as much theological teaching as we are now. Um, I've probably been doing this piece of work for about three days, um, sat with it, wrestling with it, looking over, looking at something, thinking I'm not sure what I think of that, I want to have a look if there's another perspective. Um, so when, you know, when Chris or Anne do deliver a message on a Wednesday night, um, you know, it's, it's a massive thing that we get to come for an hour and a half where we've just been kind of going along our daily business and then they deliver such a wonderful message. And whether you're really fully interested or not, that's really not the point. It's more that they're actually willing to give up that amount of time to, to give us such wonderful teaching. So, so yeah, I've definitely realized that from preparing this anyway. So, um, right. So you all got the text probably. Um, and the, the reason I want to talk about Revelation is actually on the back of what Barbara had mentioned in... Um, I'm doing that again, Claire, holding my water. <clears throat> what Barbara had said uh, the other week um, when we were in the back, and she'd asked uh, the question about what does it mean about our names being in the Lamb's Book of Life. And uh, I'm not actually going to address that scripture per se tonight. But what it made me realize is the book of Revelation as a whole um, isn't really talked about in its historical context a lot. It's usually just talked about, when we talked about this backbone of Western Christianity, it's used with a lot of mischief and an agenda. 
which ultimately um, has caused a lot of very, very dark um, teachings to be used, which have made people very afraid, when the question is, is that really the narrative at all, right? Like Jenny said, like the whole context of understanding imagery and how people used to write in that day is very important because if not, you do come up with a conclusion which I feel is potentially incredibly destructive, right? So when I was younger, um, the books that you would avoid would be Chronicles, right? Numbers, kind of, but then it had some good bits at the beginning of Numbers, so Numbers you were allowed to read. Chronicles, it was like, don't bother. The other one was um, Ecclesiastes. It was like, just don't go there. And then, of course, the third one was Revelation. They were like the three books that people just said, you know, oh, stay away from those. And Revelation, to me, was the big one because it was actually the one that also uh, created the most fear for me because you were aware, you'd hear snippets of it used in teaching. And I think back then, when the, the uh, narrative that we held to some degree was very much this heaven, hell, angry God, um, the whole context of the cross being about appeasement, things like that, whenever then you start being told stories about wrath and fire and beasts and horsemen and apocalypse and armor, you can hear it, right? When your, con your perception is already one of the facts that, have you got it right? Um, have I really accepted this guy, Jesus? And what does that mean? And is he in me? And if he's not in me, will I be the person who gets eaten by a beast? Do you get what I'm saying? Or end up in a fiery pit? Revelation to me was incredibly frightening because I'm like, but what if I haven't fully accepted Jesus? And therefore that, if that's the end story, that is particularly frightening for people who don't, quote, believe do you get what I mean? And I think it's, of course, pulled a lot into question with the journey that we've walked and the things that we've learned. Is that really what it's on about? Oh, well, you're going to learn some stuff tonight about the history of Revelation and actually what was really happening while it was being written. So it should be very enlightening and very interesting, right? So um, in order to understand it, we have to look really at, first of all, who wrote it, why it was written, and potentially where it was written. <clears throat> Um, but we need to look at the date first. Now, I've got a whiteboard out. Now, I just said to Jenny, okay, I don't really have anything to write on it, but I feel like it's a lab and it has to be here. So I'll figure out something to write. So I'm going to write this first bit. Okay, so, and then that'll be it for the rest of the night. Um, so we have AD 81 and 96. So this is the kind of uh, dates that they believe that um, Revelation was written. Now, contrary to a lot of belief, uh, we believe usually when we look at um, the New Testament that we have Matthew here and we have Revelation here, okay? But if we have, is it 27 or 28 books we've got in the New Testament? I think, is it 28? We'll go with 28, right. So if we've got naught to 28, okay, Revelation sits about here at 15th. Hey, there you go, you see? Yeah, yeah. Now, it is in the end of the Bible, but it's not actually the last book 
to be written. Now you could say, why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because everyone thinks it's like the final word, but actually other stuff was, did you know Luke was written, potentially, some people say Luke was written after Revelation. Now that in itself is interesting, isn't it? The Johns, first, second, third, all that was actually dated after. So you've got to realize that it's not necessarily now. It was the last book to be accepted into the canon which potentially is why then it was put last. Now, there were, again, I'm going to get onto this in a minute. It was a massive debate whether this book would get in. And I'll tell you the whole reason why that was like that um, in a bit. So, how was it found? <clears throat> there was a collection of scrolls that were delivered to a place called Ephesus in Turkey. In this bunch of sc scrolls was contained what we now know as the book of Revelation, or in Greek, which is the root word, apocalypse. So revelation actually is the same word as apocalypse. So again, we've come to believe this word apocalypse is something quite scary. All it basically means is, is revelation. <clears throat> um, now in this book, we're actually given the author's name. In Revelation 1 verse 4, it says, I, John. Now, this is the interesting part because tradition has said that this was the disciple John. Right? Some people believe that it was the same person who wrote um, John the Gospel. Now here's the problem. The John who is writing Revelation never once in his writings describes himself as being a disciple. Right? Something that you'd probably mention. Right? Or in any way suggests his connection to Jesus as a man. Do you get me? So there's actually no real reference to him as in having this kind of personal, person, personal, personal, very close connection with Jesus as a man. Now here's the other thing. Um, have you all heard of stylometry? Okay, so stylometry is to do with the um, assessment and analyzation of text and how somebody writes. Now, believe it or not, a lot of people think that when you assess somebody's writing, you look at a particular type of handwriting or a type of um, structure of how they write. But actually, the way that stylometry works with regards to historical writings is actually the frequency of text. So for example, if you write a word a lot, you would become known as a particular type of, that would be a type of style. So going back to this book then, um, the book of John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation were both compared stylistically. And what's very interesting, the word, which is chi, which is and, is twice as frequent in Revelation as any other book in the New Testament. You're probably thinking, why am I saying this? But we're just trying to find out who's the author. Now, the Gospel of John is one of the most infrequent in the, in the usage of that word. Likewise, the, you, the word but, which is de, in the Greek Hebrew, is incredibly frequent throughout all the other books of the New Testament, but only used seven times in Revelation. So already you're seeing that stylistically, the whole way that John was written, the Gospel of John, and the whole way that Revelation was written was actually incredibly different. And most historians would suggest that actually there is no possible way that that could have been the same writer. And again, I'm sure there's people out there who may differ, but that's what the findings that I came to. So, where do we go from here? <clears throat> now, it does say this. So it says, I, John, in Revelation 1 verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother. Now, 
Revelation contains seven letters to different churches in Turkey. They are Ephesus, I don't even know if I can, yeah. Smyrna, yeah, we'll go with Smyrna. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There you go. Now, each letter addresses each church. It acknowledges the good stuff, and it also says some stuff about the ways that maybe they should change or issues that they've got. But it appears that whoever John was, he didn't know these churches. So when he said, I, John, your brother, it suggests that the people that he's writing to, he has some sort of connection, that he's walked a journey with them, that, that he's got some sort of link there. Now, it is very clear, if any of you have ever read Revelation in here, that John was clearly trying to get something across to his reader. Clearly, because, I mean, you only have to read the first couple of chapters and you realize that it's very intense and it's very, very almost theatrical in the way that it's conveyed. Now, it says in Revelation 1 verse 3 this, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So reads aloud the words, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart when it is written because the time is near. Now, Seven-headed demons, terrifying horsemen, are even scary images for first-century Christians. Go back, read all the other books before Revelation, you don't really get taught that sort of stuff, do you? The language is very, very, very different. So the question is, why is there so much fearsome language in this particular book? Why all of a sudden have we not had all of this very, very dark graphic text and then we get to Revelation and we slammed it with it all at once? Where does it come from? <clears throat> now, what's interesting, you've got to remember that way back as well, that it says uh, those who read it aloud and those who hear it, people were illiterate back then you had one particular person who would deliver the message. So what he was saying was, blessed is the person who reads it, and then all the other people that are listening, basically they're blessed as well for hearing what's being said. So clearly this message that he was writing, he had quite a wide audience that he was trying to, to get it across to. <clears throat> now, so we ask the question, why was it such fearsome language? What was going on? It says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, if we could have the picture up of Patmos, please. I think I saved it under Patmos, if you've got it there, Phil. So it's the island at the back there. That's the island of Patmos. Now that, at the time that Revelation was written, was under the authority of the Romans. So that was ruled by the Roman Empire. Yeah. <clears throat> now, we are told that John is on this island. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So that's why he's there, right? Now, the conclusion that we can draw from this then, if the, the island is under the authority of the Roman Empire, and he, being a Christ follower, is now on this island that's under Roman authority. Bearing in mind, you understand what was going on. The, the Romans didn't want anything to do with the Christians back then. We haven't yet got to Constantine, so you were, you were discriminated against, you were tortured, whatever. 
the only uh, conclusion that we can draw really is that he ended up exiled on this island by the Roman Empire um, because of his Christian faith. So it says because of his testimony. Now what's interesting, the word testimony is witness, basically means witness, and to witness is to be a martyr. So in effect, because of his testimony, which must have been of Jesus, he actually ended up on this island in exile that was ultimately under the authority of the Roman Empire. So you can see why he got there. Now, one would ask, if he had been exiled, how did he find the freedom and the time to be able to write these letters whilst on this island? Now, I did some research on this because when you were exiled, it didn't necessarily mean that your freedom was fully taken away. You only need to look at prisons now and realize that your full freedoms are not taken away. Now, I get it that there are certain things at certain different levels, but back then in this context, you would have been put on an island where you didn't have access to be part of a whole community. So you would either have to write or you would have to get reports back, but you would not be allowed to be in the thick of the community. So that's what we mean by exile. So he would have still been able to get a, um, a scribe who could write his things, where he could send letters and things like that. Does that make sense? Um, so the exclusion he was facing, imagine this, from the mainland and those who clearly, he clearly knew in the church could have been what sparked the type of writings that he sent. Imagine if he'd been pulled from a group of people that clearly he had some authority with. All of a sudden, he's exiled. He's knowing that so much is going on with the Romans, that people have been persecuted. Imagine what that must have felt like. So in a way, he then starts to write out of the feeling of what was going on in the context of the wider picture. <clears throat> so, looking at the whole of Revelation, once we've got this in mind, the text is incredibly angry. There's an anger about it. And it also communicates the desperate need for justice. If you read Revelation from start to finish, the whole thing is about declaring justice. It's about bringing the good to their seat, you know, their, the throne, and the bad will be punished. You get it? It's all about this will be glorified, this will be stripped. Good, bad. You get it? So to think about it, if John is witnessing a particular type of political climate where Christians are being treated really, really badly, surely the need for justice is going to be his premise of writing. Does that make sense? Which is why a lot of the context of the text is pushing that way. And I'm going to clarify that in a little bit. Now, in the first century, Christians were systematically persecuted by the Romans. And it is believed to have started 20 years before Revelation was written under the reign of this guy, or emperor if you prefer, called Nero. Have any of you heard of the Emperor Nero? Emperor Nero, which was in AD 64. Now it's interesting because Nero, who was in power in AD 64, obviously they're suggesting that Revelation wasn't written until here but some have suggested that the text is regarding the persecution under Nero. So we now need to look at that. Where am I? Now, tradition has it that Nero blamed the Christians for the tragic fire that ruined the city of Rome. And so he crucified so many Christians by setting them on fire and used them as torches to light the pathway to his city. Now, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Yeah? Now, whatever people believe about faith and religion and whatever, no one should be doing that to anybody. I mean, that is 
that is seriously extreme. So he actually, the people that he blamed, he crucified, lit them up, and that they basically lined the street of the city. I mean, that's just massive, isn't it? It's really quite horrific. So imagine anybody who's been through that sort of discrimination is going to hold particular opinions about what they faced, yeah? <clears throat> now, obviously, these memories will stay with a community for a very, very long time. I mean, you look now, we're still talking about uh, marker points in history even now, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the event, it, in, in a way, it actually starts to define a community of what you've faced and what you've experienced. Um, so, the only problem we have with this is that if he's writing this text around this day, but yet Nero was doing that to the Christians in AD 64, to some degree, to be writing to people about something that had happened 20 years earlier with such with such intense language, wouldn't really make any sense to the reader if that wasn't still happening then. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because they'd be like, okay, yeah, we get that. You're sending us a letter about persecution, but actually that was 20 years ago. The question is, were they still facing it? And this is what we need to look at. Now, so it was dated between uh, 8 to 196, which was actually under the reign of a guy called Domitian, Emperor Domitian who a lot of historians have said was much less brutal and actually didn't have the same attitude towards Christians as Nero did. Now, the whole book of Revelation generally discusses persecution and you know, the issue of persecution. It talks about thousands of people who have died in the name of their faith. But in the period that it's been written, he actually only mentions one name, he labels one name, and if you've read it, that guy is called Antipas. But he doesn't mention anybody else. So he only mentions this one person as being a martyr for the faith. So, <clears throat> there is not much evidence then pointing to Domitian as being the same as Nero in this particular time that he was writing these letters. So if Revelation was written during this period, and Christians were not being systematically tortured like they were under Nero, the question is, what was the target of the letters? Do you get what I'm saying? So because the text clearly talks about things happening and things going on, but if it's not to do with persecution and the way that Nero had treated the Christians, what is his text and his imagery wanting to convey to the people who are reading it? So this is where we've got another image now. I hope this is clear. Obviously, you can go back and listen if I'm, if I'm going too fast. Um, is Pergamon, which was one of the places that it wrote to. That's the place there. That's obviously what it looked like in real life, as you can see. <laughs> it was a major political and religious center, and it was home to one of the first Christian communities to receive the book of Revelation. So these were one of the first guys to actually read the book of Revelation. Now, Pergamon was pagan, and their idea of worship was in direct conflict with Christianity. So what went on here was completely opposite to Christianity. It was everything that the Christian faith would say is completely anti what they believed in, in their faith. Now the temples that were being erected were being built to this new god, which was the emperor Augustus, right? So you see all these emperors everywhere. <clears throat> Now, this to John would have been seen as what they would have called back then an imperial cult, right? In effect, it would be blasphemy. You are exalting a man who is not God to be someone you stand in a temple and worship 
And in a way, that's just completely wrong. And, you know, that should not be happening. So John, clearly, in understanding that this was happening in Pergamon, would have been quite distressed, yeah? From a Christian perspective, back then, there was only one true God. Again, you'll have to go listen to all the teachings about that and see what you think. Uh, but John will not compromise on this basic fact of faith, that actually there is one true God, God, but you're not going to have these other idols. Now, the most compelling evidence that John was writing against an imperial cult, so here we go, this is where now we're understanding where his text is being targeted at. We've looked at Nero, where we think actually it may have been part of his writing to do with past experiences, but the audience wouldn't have understood why he was still talking about it unless they were still being persecuted. We've realized actually the likelihood of persecution occurring to the same degree is a lot lower, but now we've understood that stuff was going on in Pergamum where basically they're erecting these, uh, these statues and there's pagan idolatry and worship going on. So this is where we start to get quite dark with the text. So if we look at Revelation 13, I don't know if you can pull that up, Phil, at all. This is where uh, the beasts come into play now. Yeah? So, <clears throat> it says this. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Oh, we could sing it, couldn't we? Who is like the beast? Nobody. Yep. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Very specific. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. I wonder if you're starting to pick up on something here while I'm reading this. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, right? All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Right. Now, I'd love to read that again, but go away and read it yourselves. And when you read it, read it with the perspective, what I've just told you, of the um, power of Pergamum, the building idols, authorities existing where they're worshipping pagan gods. And when you start to read it in that context, you start to get a different perspective because you think, ah, is this actually starting to address some of the political matters that were going on at that time? Does that make sense? And I'm going to be even clearer with that so you get a better perspective because this is where it gets really, really exciting. Okay. Now, worship to the imperial gods had become so normal Right, it just become normal. The whole pagan worship thing become normal. That anyone failing to partake in that would actually have been seen as disloyal. So you've got to remember, the Christian population was a minority. The majority were pagan. So therefore, for you not to engage in pagan idolatry, you were actually classed as being the strange one and, to some degree, disloyal to the emperor. And ultimately, that could have resulted in death. 
Now, it describes a beast with seven heads, right? Seven heads. Now, get this. By John's time, how many emperors had there been? Bingo. Isn't that interesting? Coincidence, maybe? I don't think so. There had been seven emperors of Rome by the time that this had been written. Yeah? So could it be that John, talking to his audience, they kind of got what he was talking about when he was talking about uh, this beast with seven heads. They would have all known, as Christians remember, the understanding of what happened under each emperor, seven emperors, and started to realize when it starts talking about the authority and people bowing down to the beast and things like that. But all those whose name is in the book of life, which we've touched on a little bit, do you get what I'm saying? So you see, his understanding of the book of life was anybody who wasn't connected to the idolatry of the pagan gods or under the authority of the seven emperors, which I think is just really, really great. Now, here's your next one. Um, Revelation 17 verse 9 says, this calls for a mind with wisdom, get this, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, I love this. Are you ready for this? Does anybody know what city is referred to the city of seven hills? Rome. Its name is the city of seven hills. Now, do you not find that a coincidence that we have a beast with seven heads who, for some reason, there's been seven emperors up to this point. Get it, right? But then also, he starts talking about the seven heads are seven hills. And here we have the Roman Empire, which is ultimately in charge of everything, and he's saying he's addressing this place with seven hills. Can you just put that picture up for me, the seven hills one? just to prove that it's true. There you go. There the hills. And just to make you aware, I know it says Rome, first century BC or whatever, but they are still there now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They haven't just moved in 2017. I couldn't find an up-to-date map. So I just thought I'd show that one. Yeah, there, there, there is your... Um, your, your Yes, yeah. If you don't believe me, just go. Go for yourself and just have a look. It's a really nice city. Um, so, it appears John's target then is not necessarily Roman persecution, although that might have been a factor, but the paganism of the imperial cult of Rome. Yeah? But again, is this the whole story? Well, let's have a look. It gets even more exciting. So, John's fellow Christians would have shared similar views regarding paganism. So, why did they need to write in a letter? If they already knew that Rome was the powerhouse and there was these seven emperors or whatever, why was he having to write it in such detail? If they already knew that this was the case, why write it? Do you get what I'm saying? The question is, did they know it? Or was he actually understanding that they didn't know what was truly going on and he was worried that they didn't and therefore felt like he had to convey this message? So, John seemed concerned about a few of the members, and you can, read, you can read the text. I obviously can't read the whole book, but he talks and addresses a few of the issues that are going on, particularly those in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, do I have a picture of Ephesus? I think I might have given you a picture of that too. Notice I haven't drawn on the whiteboard again. 
This is Ephesus, and that is actually what it looks like today. Yeah. So, has anybody been to Ephesus? Have you been to Ephesus? Yeah, great. Okay, so that's Ephesus, and that was the old temple. Right. So, well, that got me quite excited that you'd been. really did. Okay. <laughs> Ephesus was a port town, right, where people would trade not only for business, but also in religion. So they would share their understandings of religion and share their opinions and et cetera, et cetera. And the Christian population, Ephesus, was definitely the minority. Yeah, it was a very, very small minority. Now, in a thriving pagan city, pagan, apparently, pagan city, this potentially could weaken the faith of the Christian church. Now, if Paul knew that the whole understanding of the seven emperors and the whole thing of the beast and the, this power of Rome or whatever, and the fact that generally people were being demanded to worship the pagan gods, if he was getting this belief and feeling that this was going on, that could potentially have pushed him to write to his flock to say, guys, you need to be careful here because this is actually what's going on. This is what you're not seeing. Yeah? Um, in effect, it was saying the Christian community have got too comfortable. They've ended up being um, dominated by the pagans and really they've lost their voice and it's time for that they actually stood up again for what they believed. Um, so could it be that the visions declared in Revelation are less about predicting the future, which we're going to get onto in a minute, rather than to some degree presenting an image that would assist his people to really gain some confidence again and challenge and also stand up for their faith. Potentially, might be the case. Again, there's more I can talk about on that, but I'm trying to give you a summary of the whole thing. And again, we will go back to certain things and discuss them in more detail. But is it clear so far? You're kind of getting the timeline, yeah, and the journey. That's good then. So... <clears throat> Some of the visions that are described in Revelation tell us of a very, very frightening future. They do. And I told you at the beginning, I was like really, really scared. Um, now, to those who lived 2,000 years ago, the four horsemen, the apocalypse, and the beast will have likely had a very, very different meaning to what we have now. You've got to remember that we've put it through the backbone of Western Christianity. So everything, the mischief thing again. We have interpreted things through a very much westernized view and also through a very, like we've said, heaven-hell view. We try and get the text to defend what we believe. So you go and re read Revelation. If you are a fanatic that basically believes that anybody who doesn't love God is going to burn forever, you will be able to find a lot of things in Revelation that could potentially back that up. Yeah? Um, <clears throat> So, but is this really what John was saying? Is it really what John was trying to convey? Now, the word apocalyptic had a different emphasis back then, right? Now, there are a few books in the Bible that contained apocalyptic text, and the key features are that it claims to reveal God's will directly. So, for example, the, um, the book of Zechariah, Ezekiel, um, all considered like apocalyptic texts because apocalyptic to them basically meant the revealing of something and usually the revealing of God's will. That meant that it was apocalyptic. Um, it basically, anything that promised freedom to its readers and an escape from harsh realities of life, tapping into the kingdom would have been viewed as a, an apocalyptic text. Now get this, I thought this was awesome when I found this out. Did you know the Lord's Prayer is classified as an apocalyptic text? Yeah, man. 
interesting, isn't it? Because again, the word apocalyptic to us is so dark and dingy, isn't it? It is. I mean, even like you hear how it's used in films and it's all very dark, right? But actually, the Lord's Prayer was viewed as apocalyptic and it was nothing weird. It wasn't like apocalyptic. It was like, oh, it's an apocalyptic text. Now to us now in Western society would be like, so the Lord's Prayer is bad or it's it's dark. No, no, no. All it did, what, what did it mean when it said, deliver us from evil, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on where? On earth. Somehow suggesting that actually what exists in this realm, yeah, we want everything of that to come and heal us and deliver us of what we're facing now. That is classed as apocalyptic, you see? So it doesn't mean dark at all. So to some degree, we don't read the Lord's Prayer as being dark now, do we? But we read Revelation being dark, when actually, to some degree, it was only speaking of the same thing, but just in a much more vivid way, yeah? So, let's now look at these four horsemen, shall we? Yeah? So, Revelation 6, verse 1 to 8, it talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, I won't read it. You can go and find it for yourselves. Now, all of these um, horses are different colors. It describes them as being different colors. Now, we have a red horse, right? Now, verse 4 says, And there went out another horse that was red, listen to this, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, right? And that they should kill one another, right? So, the red, to some degree, think about it, killing one another, blood, right? Rome became dominant at the expense of everyone else's life. Think about it. So that one horse was all about taking peace from the earth and ultimately taking people's lives from them. So that's why there's a red horse. Now we have a black horse. Verse 6 says this, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. This is really talking about famine and the aftermath of war. It's talking about how when you get a power like this, ultimately it creates, it strips things of its life. You know what happens in war when there's a power and ultimately all that comes to a head. Look at rations. Let's just even look at that. It all ends up being a mess, doesn't it? It doesn't work properly. Then we have, okay, now this is interesting. In the Bible it says pale horse, right? People have said it's green. Now I don't know. Oh, there's the picture. Yeah, so the pale horse is the green one. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know why they said it was green. That's what people say. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. So here we have a horse that's representing death. Ultimately, when you come under a power that ultimately is all about um, law and about um, stripping people of their freedom, ultimately you will always end up with death, right? Now this is the interesting one. We now have the white horse, right? And we're not talking about the white horse that's on the hill somewhere over there, right? It says in verse 2 this, And I saw... And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, if we were to summarize that, we could use the word vengeance. Now, what did I say at the beginning? The whole thing about Revelation was about getting justice. It was about somehow bringing the world to justice. Now, 
It's interesting, he actually starts with a white horse and then goes on to tell the others. Now we've got this white horse. Now what's the significant thing about this verse? It says he had a bow, right? Now, do you know what's interesting about that? The Christians back then in the first century would have understood what this meant, meant because the greatest enemy of Rome in the first century was the Parthian Empire and their cavalry carried bows. They were the only cavalry at that time to carry bows. Isn't that interesting? Yeah? And they were actually the enemy of the Roman Empire. Now, who we were talking about earlier? The seven beasts being the seven empires, seven hills being Rome, that's the power, all these um, things being erected to worship, pagan gods, etc., etc. So wouldn't it be interesting that then he says, I then behold a white horse, now white meaning freedom, with a man with a bow. Now, the people who he was writing to would have understood that because ultimately the only horsemen with bows were these Parthian empires, um, Parthian empire, which would have ultimately challenged the Roman authority. So it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So it appears even the dark imagery of the four horsemen is an actual encouragement to the church in a way to say that the empire's day is numbered. We will have our day where basically the horsemen will come through and we will, they will bring us our freedom back and Rome will basically crash onto its head in a way. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the four horsemen. So now we've got this word Armageddon. Now, I, did I put a picture up about uh, the, the dark one with all the things? Yeah, that. This is generally, when you watch movies, what people depict as the Armageddon is. It's like the end of the world. You see lots of horrible things happening. But for some reason, you know, a lovely family always survive. And you think, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, what? Do you, I mean, there are these films where the... the and they're all like this, holding each other and completely covered in rubble. And you're like, but what are you actually going to do now? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's really pointless. Yeah. Anyway, so this is yeah, the scene of the Armageddon, right? <clears throat> now it says in Revelation 16, verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now this just blew me away. Now, most people think, like I said before, Armageddon is this. The word is only used once in the whole of the New Testament, and that's in this verse, once. Now, do you not find it fascinating that the end of the world and the Armageddon is the thing that's really taught and really pushed in so many of these church communities who are so desperate to somehow make a point that if you're not right with God and if you're not ready you better be because I'm telling you Armageddon's coming and all these horrible things. But of course, if you've got saved and whatever, you know, we've understood that that means, you get taken up and basically all these horrible people get this happen to them. Well, I, I mean, I can't handle that. I'm sorry. I, I can't. And the, the God of love, which the gospel of John seems to talk about quite a lot, um, doesn't seem to add up with dropping rocks on people's heads and watching them. And also... Seeing the earth that was created under original blessing destroyed in such a horrific, horrible way. I don't understand how God, who says, let there be light, right, which was the first declaration, all of a sudden just says, but we'll end it with dropping bombs on people's heads. Do you see how there's a little bit of a clash here of how, it's, how it all works? So, it then talks about war being waged between good and evil. That's the whole Armageddon concept. Um... Now again, 
this, to me, is a connection to do with what we've been talking about with the Romans. Now, listen to this. The word is translated to Greek from Hebrew, ha-megiddo. Ha-megiddo. Ha, meaning a mountain or a hill, right? And then we've got Megiddon or Megiddo. It can have an N on the end. Megiddon or Megiddo is a place of crowds. So we have a place of crowds on a mountain or a hill, right? Now, what's interesting, Ha wasn't pronounced with a H back then. It was pretentious Ah. So it would have actually been Ah Megiddo or Armageddon. Basically, it comes from that root word. Now, let me now take you to a place on the plain of Jezreel called Hamagido. Do we have it? Please say we do, because that'd be really embarrassing if we don't. You can, you can see it. It's on there. It's, it's like um, a thing on a hill. Yes! This is actually called Ha-Megiddo. Now, what does Ha-Megiddo mean? Armageddon. Yeah, it's a place. Now, would you believe that? So when people are talking hellfire and bombs dropping in Armageddon, and you just say, oh, actually, it's a place, they'll be like, no. No, it is. I can take you there. Here's the picture. Now, all of those planes are part of the, the whole... Um, it was like the army where people used to fight and used to, you know, all of it used to exist here. But this was the main place and it was also where the crowds were. Now, when I say crowds, this is where it gets really interesting as well. Now, this place formed the setting of some of the bloodiest Palestinian fights of all time. There had already been numerous horrific battles fought at this place called Hamagida. So John, who was writing this book, will have already understood that this place already was, was incredibly bloody and lots going on and awful things. So why then did he put the setting of the end of the world, so to speak, here, right? Well, think about it. This is where the base of the Roman 6th Legion, where crowds gather, do you not find that interesting? The Roman 6th Legion had their main camp on this hill in Hamagido. Yeah? They were the strongest army that existed at that time. They were called the Ironsides. Now, do you not find it interesting that a place called Armageddon, where he talks about evil and good fighting, he'd put it to exist at Armageddon, which was Hamagido, which was where the um, Ironsides, the Roman army, actually resided. So again, you see, it's very specific John knew that the fight for power had always been on this piece of ground. So why, when he's writing to these people, is it going to be any different? They would have understood that war would have been engaged here for years between people and the Romans. So all of a sudden, he's saying to his audience, Armageddon, this is where the fight of good and evil exists. They would have understood that he actually was referring to a specific place of where, ultimately, the, the Christian saviors would come, whether that be the white horsemen, and the battle would exist here to bring them their freedom. And ultimately, the end of the world would kind of happen in the respects of that the end of the world as they knew it, of the persecution, would end, wouldn't it? Think about it. When you are in that much of a dark place, you want an end to come. 
You want an end to come. And to some degree, writing it in that sort of imagery makes a lot of sense because it's that actually we can't go on like this anymore. There needs to be a war between good and evil and we need to find freedom. So does that make sense? So there's your Armageddon bit. Um, now, I'm going to touch on something because I, I might be able to get it done. And if not, it doesn't matter. Um, we're actually not that far off. <clears throat> so here's another one that people often ask about Revelation. So if the aim is not to predict the end of the world, um, but was actually talking about the challenge of the Roman Empire, again, even with this whole thing of Armageddon, what were they talking about when they were talking about the number 666? Yeah? It's used in horror films. It's used all over the place. 666, the number of the beast or whatever. Um, so if the beast was referring to the emperors or the seven the heads of the emperors, what did John mean by this specific number? Because it's quite specific, isn't it? It's like 66. It actually says, the scripture says this, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. I find that fascinating as well. I, I, I only saw that when I was putting this preach together. It is the number of a man. Well, I was never told that. Like, that is very specific. It is the number of a man. Now, people said, yeah, the, the devil or whatever. Well, it doesn't say that. He could have, couldn't he have said Satan there? Because surely, as a Christian, he would have understood the powers of darkness or whatever. He says the number of a man, right? Which suggests he was actually referring to someone specific. That when he then gave the number, again, his readers would have understood what it was on about. Now, you understand back then numerology, is that right? Numerology was a massive thing. And back then, the ancient world, they loved their puzzles and numbers and would commonly use numbers to describe, to disguise a name. So the Greek and Hebrew alphabet, basically the letters have a number that corresponds to that letter. You could all do it yourself. You can all go and like, find the number of your name. I couldn't because there was no J. Um, that's another story. I don't know what Jesus would have done. Um, right. Um, anyway, so every letter had a corresponding number. Now, it's another one I can add to my book. No J in the alphabet, great. Um, now, the Emperor Nero, going back to Nero now, added up to what? 666. Isn't that interesting? Now we're talking about a man. What did we say about Nero earlier? Nero was ultimately causing horrendous things for, this, for his people. So, this is one of the ideas. And again, remember, the lab is not just about giving you information that's absolutely categorically true, because here's where it gets very interesting. About 100 years ago, fragments of um, what they say to be revelation were found uh, 30 feet under the ground in, a, in this, this like uh, pot. And when they pulled it out, they found fragments of scriptures that were linked to the text of revelation. And the number that was actually given was 616, not 666. They're saying that 666 might potentially have been a mishap in translation when it was used from the, those texts, but actually this segment that they found actually said 616. Now, I think it's really fascinating. It might have been 666, but let's have a look. Anyway, so I thought, well, okay, well, what is 616? Because 666 kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because you think, well, the whole thing of Nero We've already said that that was a massive issue, so it makes sense, but the moment then you switch to 616, well, who the heck was 616? Like, did he even exist? He said it was a man, so I thought, let's have a look, right? Well, actually, he did exist. It was a guy called Caligula, and that was his nickname, so I'll give you his full name. It was Gaius Caesar, 
right? Now, Gaius Caesar equaled 616. Now, what you would have to do is, like we said, Nero is kind of an easy one to get your head around, but did Gaius Caesar actually do anything to create a problem for him to say, basically, watch out for this man, whatever, because he might have just been nobody. So I thought, right, let's do a little bit of research into this 616 then, this guy Caesar. Now, the answer comes from something that happened during his very, very, very short reign, and it was this. He ordered a full-size statue of himself to be placed in the temple at Jerusalem. Did you hear that? He wanted a full-size statue in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this was total blasphemy, to actually put a temple of yourself in. The temple, the main temple, was just completely, was completely wrong. Um, obviously, particularly to the Jews, who the temple was dedicated to the worship of their one true God. So for this guy, Gaius Caesar, to then all of a sudden say, we're going to put me in your temple of your one true God, which is why some suggest that actually John was referring to the fact that this guy wanted to take over the temple of Jerusalem and ultimately make it a pagan temple rather than being a place where God was actually honored and worshiped. See that? So you can see actually both are possibilities. And again, even historians, we've got to remember this, historians are still looking at the facts behind that of actually which one potentially was the original text. But I thought, let's just throw them both out. Gives you something to think about, doesn't it? And we can always talk about it at a later date. So if Revelation isn't prophesying regarding the end of times, which we've said, but is actually an attack on Rome, where does this leave John's visions? Now, most scholars and historians would believe that Revelation is not about the end of the world, but it's actually an urgent message from a for a first century audience being seduced by the Roman imperial cult. Yeah? <clears throat> I'm nearly done. So here is the next question. If it is simply imagery used for first century Christians, why does he seem to have this distinct ability to foretell future events? And we've got to say it because some of the stuff that's in there, you just think, all oh, right, this is, and I'm going to read you one in a minute that I was blown away by. Um, now, is it coincidence? And actually, the stuff that he was saying, did then they experience already? And it just happens to be coincidence that we're ex, because the thing is, in all fairness, the first one, climate change, he talks about climate change in, in Revelation. That could be anything. He, they could have witnessed some freak weather that they weren't sure of, and they, he could have then linked that to, do you get what I'm saying, or, or whatever. And, and you, know, you can't always fully say that it's absolutely definitive, because again, there's this whole thing of percentages and chances, you just don't know. But again, so climate change was one that he talked about, seas drying up, unbearable heat. Now this was a funny one, the drying up of the river Euph Euphrates, Euphrates. Now what's interesting about this, just recently it has been proposed to build dams along this river. Just recently. Now again, it's interesting, isn't it? He said that these rivers would dry up and just recently they've been talking about dams. Now, here's the best one. Revelation 8 verse 11. It says, the name of the star is Wormwood. Now do you all know where I'm going with this? It says a third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Now, you are not going to believe this. Have you all heard of Chernobyl in the Ukraine? The nuclear thing that, yeah. 
Now, in the Ukraine, the word Chernobyl is what? Wormwood. Yeah. Their water turned bitter because of the nuclear waste. Now, again, it gives you a little bit of a chill, doesn't it? Just a little bit. So you can see why some people have thought, well, my word, is it? And again, we've got it. It could be coincidence. It might be. I don't know. And I'm not, to be honest with you, I don't believe that there's enough in that to necessarily panic too much about because you've seen the whole thing that we've looked at. We've looked at a much broader perspective. But it's still something to think about, right? So again, I haven't got there yet. My head couldn't get around that. I was too tired after doing all of this. But eventually, we'll look at some of those more specifics, Yeah. Now, then there's the other one, the end of the world, um, which people have kept saying for the last however many hundreds of years that it's going to happen, and it doesn't seem to happen. So, uh, again, so most scholars don't believe that John's prophecies were meant for a 21st century audience, um, but his prophecies were declaring the realities of what he felt at that time. Now, I'm sure that John and Anthony Chris have said this recently about the other books that they've been studying. If he knew that people were reading Revelation now with a view to teach it to people with their own perspective, more often than not using it as a tool to harm people and scare people, yeah? We always used to say, you can scare people to heaven with hell. Think about it. Most people on their deathbed who never ever were interested in having a faith would have said, but I'm afraid. I want to accept Jesus. It was, it was because they actually deep down knew of the hor horrors that a lot of people said would exist. Do you hear where I'm coming from? <clears throat> so I believe that the, the, the book of Revelation is definitely more of a book to be looked at with fascination and intrigue of this political power that was going on during the first century church and actually that was written in such a beautiful way to convey to... You also have to remember, and I said this on the Wednesday, you had to be very careful how you worded things if you were sending letters because if you, especially if John was in exile, if he was writing specifics that could potentially challenge the Roman Empire when he'd already been exiled by the Roman Empire, he'd be killed. And then he wouldn't actually ever be able to get his message out to the people. So do you see where, where it all, how it all works? Now, bringing this to a close then. In the fourth century, no, I'll go back because this is, is, is interesting. In all the writings, it appears that one of his prophecies specifically came true, right? In the ruins of Ephesus were found the fallen statues of the Emperor Augustus, which was erected for the pagans to worship, and his wife. And it had actually been vandalized and crosses had actually been put on the heads of these broken um, gods. Now what they're saying is they'd been vandalized by the early church, the Christians, who had finally, clearly they'd been freed, the, the temple had been destroyed, these had come fallen down, and they'd actually put crosses on the head to symbolize that actually, in spite of all the stuff they'd faced with Rome, ultimately, the God of Jesus would ultimately always be the one at the center of everything. Now, I find that just quite interesting. So part of his message really did come to pass. Now, in the fourth century, Constantine decides that trying to wipe out the church is never going to work, right, because it became too strong, so he declares that Christianity is an official power um, within the empire, and by the end of the fourth century, Christianity actually became the dominant faith on the planet. 
So all of uh, John in Revelation, all of his text, to some degree ended up, you could say ended up, it worked, he won, because eventually the power which was this faith in this man called Jesus and that did become the thing that actually came through. Now the problem with that is I've got a lot to say about Constantine, and I know we've touched on it a little bit. The mischief then came in from that point, but that doesn't mean to say that how we started it in the early church, actually, all this stuff we did actually get through and, and the faith of, of John's people who he was writing to, ultimately, they gained the confidence to actually stand up for their faith and ultimately defeat Rome. So it it's kind of ends out all right, the story, in, in a way. Does that make sense? So I think that if we were to gain anything from tonight, apart from the fact that it's been very historical, and I hope I haven't bored you, I know it's been very historical and very lecture-like, but to some degree, to get an understanding of Revelation, you can't just delve into individual scriptures straight away. You have to get an understanding first of the context. This John of Patmos not only predicted things, but in a way potentially gave his audience their faith back. He gave them some sort of energy back to actually see, yeah, and hope to actually see things delivered and things change and and I think that to some degree, um, if we look at Revelation as understanding that even now we face powers, now I believe that the beast, if you think that the seven heads were the emperors and they're, they're, they're uh, I don't know why I'm pointing here as if the seven heads on the, on the board. <laughs> I should draw it really. Um, if their whole point was to rule and dominate and hurt and harm and gain power and empirical rule. What do, tries to do that now? None other than religion. Religion in the respects of a religion that tries to, or law, law in the context of religion. Like Paul was saying, you know, the law will always kill. The desperate need to, to it always binds up. Now, in effect, these seven, I've done it again, these seven uh, uh, emperors who were ultimately harming the Christian community, um, John was saying the importance of destroying it. In a way, actually, those visions still ring true now. There are wars that need to be had on this um, Ha-Megiddon, or whatever it's called, Ha-Megiddon. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are wars that need to be waged. And actually, to some degree, the book of Revelation is still speaking about a very real thing that's happening now. But we're not talking about the, the thing of heaven and hell or anything like that. We're actually talking about the fact that we, we often lose our faith and we can actually be swept up by so many different things. And the letter that comes to us when we read Revelation should be actually, ultimately, the just, justice and freedom is ultimately the message. Think about when Jesus was on the earth. His whole concept was justice and liberty for all, wasn't it? Take a seat at the table. In a way, I feel that if you look at Revelation with that same perspective, that actually it is about liberty, it's about justice, it's about coming out from under the rule of those who wish to tie us up, to make us live in bondage, um, the mark of the beast being that sense of you will bow down and worship me, which ultimately means I'm going to rule you, when actually this is the thing, God has never ever demanded anybody to bow down and worship, apart from really just sit at the table. You can see where everything's different. It's not about being bound up. It's not about being whipped. It's all about ultimately deliverance and freedom and actually celebrating and having a joy like I spoke about the other week. It should all be centered on joy. So I'm done. I hope that was clear.
Um, it's very different doing Wednesdays in this context, but I, I, obviously, you know, when you've been studying it for three days, it's something that you've seen. But I hope coming in, and particularly, I would like to say this, for those of you who have been in a church, for, in, in a church, in any church for a very long time, you will know that that book particularly has had certain connotations, and it has. For those of you who haven't, obviously I hope that you will still enjoy the history part of it, just understanding, because it's, it's just interesting anyway. More so for those who have been in the church, I hope that it has shed light a little bit on some of those questions that we used to ask and actually used to be a little bit confused about and concerned about, and sometimes it wouldn't just sit quite right. So particularly for, you know, for me who was brought up in church and for, for some of you guys who have been with us all, pr pretty much all of your life, I hope that it's left you thinking, wow, like that seems to make just a little bit more sense. And that actually, even back then, they weren't trying to be so dark and gruesome and try and point out that people were somehow in danger of being shot down by all these rocks that were going to shower on the earth. He was actually talking about a very specific um, real issue that existed on the earth. And we can never forget that because if we do forget that, a lot of our, to some degree, we actually become quite close-minded. We do have a history. And just because we've been sold certain things about the book of Revelation by, from, the, from the stage and from the pulpit, we can't then deny some of science and his, historical context to actually then shape our view of Scripture. And to me, it makes the whole book far more mesmerizing. So what I would suggest, if you're up for the challenge, go and read it. And don't be afraid of it anymore. Read it as letters. That's all they are, remember, are letters. And the letter is not to you. The letter is to a particular church in Ephesus. Remember that. But read it with the view of, wow, okay, I'm going to look at this and think, put myself in their shoes just one second. What was going on? You know, what were the sounds, the smells, the tastes? Like, what was the scenery? And all of a sudden, you can put yourself in quite a world because you realize all this was going on, and this is quite fascinating. How would you have felt when you got this letter through thinking, wow, he was referring to this? Do you get what I mean? So it actually makes it more enjoyable, I think. Anyway, 20 to... We've finished early, but I think we're done. We don't need to go in anymore. Love you lots, and thank you. Right. So you're talking about the canon, when the Bible was decided. Okay. Um, I can... Un no, no, no. It is... It was in here, and I deleted it at five past seven. Right. <laughs> You've made me feel guilty now. <laughs> no, which is brilliant because doesn't it show? No, no, right. It is a brilliant question and it's actually my favorite question. Whenever it comes down to how did a book of the Bible get in to the Bible? So for example, I'll throw this one for you. Ezekiel didn't nearly make it. Ezekiel missed out, very nearly missed out. It was the one that actually nearly missed out the most of any of the books. And do you know why? Shall I tell you why? Yeah, I'll tell you why. He actually taught that people could find prophecy for themselves. He taught that they could find their own understanding and seek wisdom from God. Whereas before, remember, everything was about you being told that you had to do it a certain way. But all of a, of a sudden, Ezekiel's teaching people, did you know that you can find the God within, that he can speak to you, that he can give you freedom? Now remember, the church who was putting the canon together, who ultimately was a bit concerned that if anybody found freedom for themselves, 
the religion institu religious institution wouldn't thrive, that caused a little bit of a problem. Similar with Revelation, actually, is some people believed that it didn't benefit the actual yeah, general theme of the, of the church. I mean, I'm not going to go into so much detail, but I, it would be something that I would like to speak about at some point. Um, a lot of Eastern Orthodox Christians do not validate Revelation as a book of the Bible. They do not teach it. They have decided that it, to them it is not an important part of the, and they don't believe it's, it's validated as something that needs to be taught within the Christian community. So there you go. See, it's quite interesting, isn't it? But yeah, I will, I will definitely touch on it because I think in general, the canon as a whole needs to be looked at more of why. So for example, I would love to know why Job isn't the first book of the Bible because it was one of the earliest, it was earlier than Genesis, for example. So to me, I would, I'd love to read the Bible in its actual chronological order because you see, we've understood that the Bible was a library of books. All of those books in the Bible should be separate. If we had to go and find an individual book and read it separately, potentially our whole viewpoint of Christianity would be different because you wouldn't have had this full run through. And I'm not saying it's bad, but what I am saying is that because of the order, that sometimes potentially throws things out a little bit. So, um, so yeah, Job actually is one of the, the oldest books. Um, but I will take on board your question and I will touch on it if I'm let back on. <laughs> Who knows? My, my writings on here are so bad that Anth might be like, never again, <laughs> never again. All right, thank you all so much for listening to me. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.